Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Epi Manzel was a business executive. He entered the ministry later in life, and in 1973, he was voted in as the conference president of the Allegheny Wesleyan Methodist Conference of Churches. He was also known as a man with a very deep prayer life. This sermon was preached in 1980 at the Seabreeze Camp Meeting in Hope Sound, Florida, and it's titled, Many Are Called, But Few Are Chosen. I know you're going to enjoy this excellent message. Now this evening I want to call your attention for our consideration to the gospel according to St. Matthew. And I shall begin my reading in chapter 21 of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Uh, several, a night or so ago, a couple of nights ago, we spoke out of the 21st chapter, and that which we are dealing with tonight would properly follow in its course. <clears throat> we, I think, spoke, uh, or perhaps it was in a morning service, that we spoke out of the 21st chapter and then in the night service to the 25th chapter. But this evening I want to go back to the 21st chapter and then move into the 22nd chapter. Now you will recall uh, where we concluded in chapter 21 with the three movements that were involved, the dialogue between Jesus and a committee that waited upon him concerning his authority and who had given him his authority to do certain things, to break with traditions. And he also gave to them two illuminating parables, the parable of the two sons and then the parable of the vineyards. And then you will recall that Jesus in his questioning of those to whom he was speaking caused them to make a response which brought upon themselves personal condemnation. Now you will note, beginning with verse 45 of chapter 21, there is an indication of the response now of these individuals to the message Jesus had given to them, both through his dialogue and the two parables, which gives rise to the third parable in chapter 22. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. That's verse 44. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. 
And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready, come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away. Cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. I desire tonight to use as a text verse 14 of this passage and around it, we trust we shall be able to surround, uh, render the truth. I'd like to give to you, however, a couple of other considerations for these words. Your King James simply reads it like this. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now it is apparent here that the choice that God will make is determined by the responses which men will render to the call. And that is a, the apparent truth expressed here in the King James rendering of it. There's another consideration of it that would read like this. For many are called, but few are choice. That is, few individuals will have the quality that they shall make the kind of a choice that an individual must make to the call. For many are called, but few are choice. That is, there are few who will be discerning enough and who will be perceptive enough and who will render careful consideration enough to make the proper choice. And then there is a third for many are called, but few make the choice. Now there is a distinction between all three of those considerations. Tonight I would like you to keep those in mind as we endeavor to bring the truth out of the passage that is before us. Shall we lift our hearts together in prayer? Our gracious Heavenly Father, another time we come before Thee in this solemn moment in this service, 
We recognize tonight that we are assembled here not to hear the pratings of a man, but to hear from God. We desire that thy Holy Spirit tonight shall take divine truth and translate it into the language of the heart and transmit it on the wings of thy spirit that it may find lodging in every soul and grant our Heavenly Father that our disposition shall be so disposed that we shall render the positive responses to the truth that are necessary that we might come into the full scope of thy divine will for our lives. Thou dost see every individual in divine presence. Not a one of us have ever escaped thy notice. We are all knowledgeable to thee. Thou dost know our comings in and our goings out. We remember the statement in John's Gospel chapter 2 where it is stated of Jesus that he needed not that any man should tell him of man for he knew what was in man. And our Father, we're aware tonight that thou who art omniscient has a perfect knowledge of each of us. There is nothing that is ever hid in the total disposition of our natures from thee. We thank thee tonight for thy faithfulness to us in the presentations of truth thus far in this camp. We pray, our Father, that another time that thy Holy Spirit shall render the unction and the help that is necessary to make plain the word of God. Take this service and out of it render glory and honor and praise to thy name. Oh God, we recognize tonight what an awesome responsibility it is. And we pray that thou shalt some way, some way, some way magnify thyself, exalt thy great name, that thine eternal truth shall be declared. Pray thou shalt gain the glory, the honor, the praise to thyself in this service and we shall give thee the praise in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. I desire to call your attention tonight particularly to the parable that I read in your hearing. Now I am going to render tonight perhaps an examination of this parable that may make some departure from what we generally consider to be the traditional view. However, I desire this evening to leave it specifically within the context in which it is found. One of the basic rules of Bible interpretation is never interpret the scripture outside of the context in which it is located. This particular parable is found within the context of the gospel according to St. Matthew. Actually, the larger context, of course, is the Holy Scriptures themselves, the entirety of the Bible. But then the more immediate context is the gospel according to St. Matthew, and that gospel has one specific theme. It is a presentation of Jesus Christ, who, coming through the Son of David, is the King of Israel. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is to assume the throne vacated by David. He came in the proper succession and as a consequence was to be God's uh, appointee to the throne. Thus I would like you to consider with me tonight that the picture involved in this parable is not one of the marriage of a man to a woman such as we most traditionally view it but rather it is the picture 
of the marriage of an heir apparent to the throne to the subjects of the kingdom. You will recall that in Matthew's gospel, chapter 21, that the Lord Jesus made the presentation of himself upon the basis of the ministry which he had performed as a teacher through chapter 20 and uh, presented himself as the Messiah who had fulfilled all of the Old Testament scriptures. He had come and had properly identified himself and now they had the opportunity to receive him. Now in this particular parable, Jesus gives us a whole panorama of history. He reveals to us and to those to whom he was speaking the entire preparation that God had made for the presentation of the king's son and to be married to the subjects of a kingdom. God had come to that particular moment in history when he would present unto the house of Israel that one whom the prophet had declared would come in the fullness of time. That hour had now arrived. But individuals had become confused, some of them by reason of their ignorance, other individuals by the rejection of truth, their re, uh, irresponsibility and walking in the light. And as a consequence, basically, there was a rejection of him. Even as you will note in the closing portion of chapter 21. For they knew that he spoke of them, the word says. And so they sought to lay hands on him. But did not do it because they feared the people who counted this Jesus who had been ministering among them as one of the prophets. Now Jesus gives them another parable. And he said a king has made a marriage for his son. It is said by some who have endeavored to give us a view of life as it existed in the time in which the scriptures were written uh, that a king, when he had reached a specific period in life, when he recognized that his time upon the throne was becoming extremely short or perhaps by, uh, by reason of his age or some physical or mental impairment that he would declare a moment when all of the emissaries of the kingdom who were representatives of the various pro provinces of the realm would be required to come to the capital city and to the palace and there do obeisance not only before the king who then sat upon the throne but him who would be the lawful successor to the throne at the time the throne would be vacated by the father king. The picture generally was drawn like this, that the king and his son would be sitting on adjacent thrones in the throne room, and each emissary would be required to approach the king. And as they would declare their loyalties, and the loyalties of the subjects over whom they had governorship, the king then would extend his scepter. And the king's hand would be upon the scepter and his son's hand upon the scepter. So that the emissary then would bow before both the king and the king's son 
and kissed the scepter, they would render proper obeisance, pledging their loyalty not only to the father king, but also to the son, who was then soon to assume the positions of responsibility. I think you can see this, for you will remember that in the Gospel of Matthew, there were frequent occasions that the scribes, the Pharisees, and the lawyers of the law would remind the Lord Jesus when he made claims upon them that we be the father of, our father be Abraham. We are the sons of Abraham. And we know only one God. And that God is Jehovah. That God is the Lord God. And we know no other. They would refuse to acknowledge the fact that God would have one who would fulfill all of the Old Testament scripture and this one who is making his presentation may be that specific individual. Thus it begins to fall into place for us here. Now the word says that this father king made this kind of a marriage. Now associated with that moment of obeisance and when that moment of obeisance and pledge of loyalty was completed, the emissary then had the privilege of entering into the banquet room or a place of celebration where they all together with the king's son as well as with the king himself would rejoice since the unity of the realm was being preserved and the natural succession of power was being established and the work of the kingdom would continue. Now the word tells us that God the Father had made a proper present, a proper preparation for this specific marriage. Now I do not dare take the time tonight to trace it with you from the beginning of the Old Testament and all the way through the prophetic utterances and promises but I think I will take this moment to declare unto you that God exercised every means and exhausted every possibility so that no individual would have ever needed to be an heir. That when the fullness of time was come and God would send his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that any individual would necessarily have failed to have recognized or to have identified him. In fact, beginning very early in the scripture, you will note that God did through a process of revelation utilize every necessary means. He gave to us marvelous truths in the form of promises. He also drew for us some of the most remarkable of object lessons. As I study the Old Testament and look into the tabernacle, and that tabernacle in its composite nature, in its totality, is the revelation of Jesus Christ, our salvation, both in his humanity and also his deity, so that it is a proper presentation of the very God-man, the Son of God made flesh, walking among men, tabernacled among us. It is also interesting, as you note, that God did not simply leave it with a tabernacle that consisted of a building, a sacrificial system, a priesthood and articles of furniture, but he went one step further. He likewise 
gave unto them prophets who not only enunciated promises, but constantly reminded the people as to what God was endeavoring to imply, both by the giving of his law and also by the practices that were to be engaged within the tabernacle system. Then finally, God gave John the Baptist, whom the scripture says no greater was ever born a woman. He had a responsibility of pulling down mountains of pride, filling in valleys of depression, taking out the crooked places in the road. He had the responsibility of removing stones of stumbling that the king of glory might come in. Then John said, when Christ was about to assume his earthly ministry, I must decrease, but he increased. And he identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world and exhorted John, his own disciples to become followers of that Lamb. Then Jesus Christ assumed his responsibility and through his parabolic ministry, through the signs and wonders that he performed, through his oral teaching and similitudes, he was able to convey to us basic truths concerning his identity. God had left not a single thing undone that needed to be done in order that men would properly recognize him. Now the word tells us that when this feast had been prepared, that a specific invitation had gone to every emissary and they were bidden to come. But you will note as you study the passage that is before us tonight that there are certain prevailing attitudes. Let me remind you tonight that the prevailing attitudes that are enunciated here are the attitudes that humanity has expressed down through the centuries toward the Lord Jesus Christ when he has presented himself unto them as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. The fact of the matter is this parable here deals with the Lordship or the Kingship of Jesus Christ. The fact that every one of us here are under the responsibility to own him as Lord. That was the problem where these people to whom Christ first came, the house of Israel itself, had their difficulty. It broke in on my consciousness in studying for this camp meeting that Christ ran into his problems basically uh, with the family of Israel in the fact that he broke with their traditions that he failed to conform to their patterns. He did not systematize himself in the fashion that they felt or felt they understood him to be. And as a consequence, he ran amok of the entirety of their concepts and they could not tolerate anything that contradicted the positions which they had chosen. Now this particular passage that is before us tonight begins to give to us those attitudes which go to the basic centrality of the human nature itself. Fact of the matter is, as you study this passage, you will note those attitudes are expressed by the word not, N-O-T. You will note in verse 3 
the statement is made, they would not come. Then you will notice in verse 5, but they made light of it and went their ways, one to their merchandise and one to his farm. And finally in verse 6, you see that not taking on violence where they reach up the finger of moral insanity to endeavor to turn out the light that now is tormenting them. Now I want you to note this evening, first of all, that when Christ presented himself, as I mentioned to you in chapter 21, they did not own him. Some of the children acclaimed him and they were rebuked. Some other individuals acclaimed him, but they were rebuked. But those who were in authority, positions of responsibility, who had the authorities to have rendered leadership to the entirety of the house of Israel, would not come. He was speaking primarily here to those that had those areas of authority and areas of responsibility. For up until now, there was a patriarchal system that was being employed. You'll recall in the scripture that the father of the household made decisions for his family. Likewise, the princesses over the tribes made decisions for the tribe. And likewise, the king would make decisions for the whole kingdom. And on the basis of those decisions within the patriarchal system, every individual within the system was bound. Thus Christ was basically here talking in the first place to those that were in the position of responsibility of leadership. Now, in the book of Ezekiel, which is a transitional book in the scripture, there are some very significant words, and those words are no more. And Ezekiel saw that there was a transition coming. There would be a time when the patriarchal system would not be in its full force, but that every individual would stand on his personal merit before God. Thus you will note as you study this, that when those who had been bidden, those who were the leadership, those who were of the leadership within their system would not come, then you will note, beginning in verse 4, he sent forth other servants. Those other servants that he sent then became those who had the responsibility of illuminating this message to the entirety of the house of Israel. I think if you keep it in its prophetic sequence here, this would have immediately, uh, would have come at the time that Christ himself began to send forth those who would represent him out there within Jewry. And the word tells us that the father said, you tell them that my feast is all ready. My fatlings are killed. Everything is in its proper place. There is not another thing to be done. And the invitation is to the whole house. Come to the feast. I want my house to be filled. Come to the feast. But then the word tells us that these likewise would not come. The word says that they made light of it. And one went to his farm and another went to his merchandise. Then you will also note there is another and there seems to be here 
a transition that takes place then wherein the apostles likewise went out following the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Ghost and they declared first unto the Jew and then finally unto the Gentile the wonderful truth of God so much so that Peter was able to declare that this Jesus whom you have crucified is indeed the Christ, the Son of God, the King of glory. He is the one you've been waiting for. He is the Messiah. And you would not come. Now the invitation is out to you. But the Word tells us they spitefully slew or spitefully used and slew those spokesmen. And thus in the Acts of the Apostles you have the picture of the final rejection that led Israel right up to 70 AD when Titus Vespasian brought to the dust of the earth the city of Jerusalem as it is pictured for us in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 22 when the king became wrong and sent his armies and destroyed their city and, and utterly destroyed those murderers Beloved, I want you to see tonight that the basic malady within the human heart is the fact that man does not and will not have someone to rule over him. It is a rebellion to the government and to the claim of God. God has three rights over you. First of all, he has the right of creation. In that, God, you are not the figment of imagination. You are not in this world by chance. You didn't just happen. You are the fire of the expression of the divine will. Secondly, God has the right of law and government over you in that you live as a citizen within his universe and you are subject to his law physically and morally and spiritually. And there is no abrogation of that law. But what reaps direful and doleful consequences. You and I can't abrogate the physical law that God has instituted in order to control this universe without reaping fearful consequences of it. You and I can't abrogate the moral law of God without reaping the fearful consequence. You and I cannot abrogate God's spiritual law. Now get to that a moment. Without reaping the fearful consequences of it. We're under the authority of God. But man at the basic seat of his nature is in rebellion to that authority. He has an inherent something within his nature that refuses to respond to the demand that Jesus Christ be Lord over him. That's what's wrong with many of you who are here. You will own no master but yourself. You live in a realm of your own purpose. You follow the path of your own desire. This has been the problem with man since the garden even until now. And I got studying into what was the actual sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. I came to this conclusion. It wasn't simply taking a piece of forbidden fruit. But it was that inherent something that caused them to make that choice. Say, what was it? 
They simply said to God this, just like some of you have said to him. We have the intelligence. We can make our own choices. We have purpose to do our own thing. We'll go our own way. We'll do as we please. We will not have you to rule over us. Adam and Eve were really saying to God, Oh God, will we know what's right and good for us. We know what's evil and bad for us. Therefore, we'll make our own choices. We don't need you to tell us. That's the same problem right here. That's been the basic inherent problem of the human family through the centuries. We will not own an allegiance to God. We pilot our own course, take the reins in our own hands, we pilot our own ship, and we defy anybody to interfere with it. And the tragedy is we can dress it up in extremely religious clothes just like the Jews did in their generations. They were able to dress it in the respectability of traditions. When they didn't have a law, they manufactured it to give them a superficial holiness. They were able to make thousands of laws out of ten. Constantly multiplying until almost every little iota of living had a specific law to govern it. They had the rebellion of the heart dressed in the respectability of a religious cloth. And when God would make the demand, the word says, we will not come. I have found wherever I go in the world, in the most paganist societies, as well as in the most cultured, that that is the basic response of the claim of God to the human soul. I've had occasion to talk to PhDs. I've spoken to college students in graduate schools. Had occasion to speak to those in the baccalaureate. Individuals who are now in the professions. And when the claim of the gospel, and the gospel is Christ, is presented unto men. Those individuals respond the same way. We will not come. I live there. You live there. And every redeemed soul that's in this house tonight one time lived there. That is inherent within the, at the seat of the basis of the nature within man. He comes into this world with that perversion. basic in his nature. Thus God tells us that there came an hour when God had to deal with it to those who received the first call. You remember Jesus made the statement that his responsibility was first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And all of his presentation was made to them. And it's remarkable to note 
of those of whom great faith is attributed were not of the house of Israel. And it is also interesting to note that the disciples now become apostles after Pentecost first went to the lost sheep of the house of Israel before they began to disperse and go around the world. God gave them every opportunity with every advantage with every privilege, just like he gives us every advantage, every privilege. And hear me tonight, not a single camp meeting, church revival, or occasion when a witness has accosted you about the claim of Christ on you, but what you will be answerable for that at the judgment. Sometimes we have the idea that the gospel is simply so many words of a man. Never. The gospel is Christ. It isn't the rejection of the words of a preacher. Last night it wasn't the rejection of the words of a Dr. Yoakum. It was the rejection of the gospel who is Christ. His claim was made out upon men and men said we will not come. It's the basic response of the nature. It's inherent within the creature. We have something in us that absolutely refuses to bend its neck. I'm making a little study of the scripture and I noticed that in Jeremiah chapter 2 when God said Israel was holiness unto the Lord he lists three conditions that were apparent in them at the time that he was able to declare they were holy. First of all he said I remember the kindness of thy youth. Actually, those words mean, I remember when you bent your neck to me. That is, when you submitted to me, when you yielded to me, when you purposed my purpose in your life. Then Jesus gave the same thing in Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 28 and 29 and 30. And he said, come unto me and I will give you rest. Then he makes a statement in the next verse, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. In other words, bend your neck to me, to my government, to my law. Bend your neck to me. That's something God cannot do with us. He can make us extremely uncomfortable in our rebellion. But he cannot bend your neck. You're praying a futile prayer if you ask God to make you yield. For it was by man's will that he sinned. And it will by his will that he also make a move toward God. There's no other alternative to that. There isn't any automatic formula. God doesn't sweep you into the kingdom. It's an individual, personal decision that you make within the confines of your will. I'm going to tell you something tonight. One of the great areas of our fallacy is that we do not involve sufficiently the matter of the will in this thing. 
or we wouldn't have so much vacillation and up and down and in and out within the areas of our experiences. Back there, when I was just a lad of about 12 years of age and made that decision to go with God, I never know of a single time when there was a revo revocation of that decision. The will was set. Weal or woe, I serve God. And there's been times when I haven't felt so religious. But the will was set. There were times when we were placed in dire temptation during the course of our service years in World War II. But the will was set. There were times when we were in college and even well, the, the little time we, time we put in the university when we faced questions on the validity of the holy word but the will was set you see that it's basic it's inherent here I ran into some statistics that shocked me I learned that only 10% of D.L. Moody's converts survived the first year of their professed experience. But 30% of Charles Finney's converts survived the first 10 years or more of their professed experience. Finney majored in an area of decision or will. We have moved into an area of evangelism across the church today where we play upon the emotion rather to enlist a consent of will and decision. You're not going to be swept in the kingdom on a wave of emotion. You'll have to make a basic, inherent, definite decision in this matter that falls within the scope and the perimeters of your will. Thus Jesus gives to us a panorama of history here right up to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the forces of Titus Vespasian, the Roman, the Roman general, in around 70 AD. And the Jew then lay in the dust of antiquity with a veil over his face and could not see the glory of God. And anybody born into the kingdom after that, out of jewelry, jewelry, came in out of due season. And that's a marvelous thing. I thank God for everyone that has. But they haven't been multitudes. Thank God there's more of them now as we're approaching toward the end of this age that are having an awakening and a pull in their heart and are beginning to render a response. To whom? To the claims of this Messiah? To the claims of this Jesus whom they pierced? to the claims of this Jesus whom they crucified. But then a transition comes in this parable, beginning in verse 8. God begins to turn his notice. Now away from the house of Israel. If you'll study Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw this beginning to take place in his vision. 
He saw God sitting on a throne high and lifted up, his train filling the temple, and hearing the seraphims crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah saw some things happening. He saw the doorposts beginning to move. He saw with a telescope of prophecy the access for the Jewish family of approach to God now beginning to turn away and go unto another even as Moses promised it would if they disobeyed him. It was delayed for the space of over 800 years. But finally, it transpired. And here in this parable, Christ endeavors to document it. He said, now the change has come. You can read the Acts of the Apostles when that change began to take place. And uh, at first, it was simply Peter receiving a vision. A sheet let down out of heaven with the clean and the unclean. And his whole consciousness began to awaken to the fact that God was opening up a whole new area of ministry. Then you'll recall that eventually Paul and Barnabas were appointed by the church to carry this message to whom? To the Gentile. Now here in verse 8, Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready. Everything is in place. My salvation is here. The Christ of God is here. The gospel is here. The king's here. The Lord's here. Go ye there. They said, but they which were bidden, now get this, were not worthy. In other words, now God on the basis of the way the King James renders it here, for many are called, but few are chosen. God, on the basis of their response, discovered they were not worthy or choice. And therefore, his attention, through the ministry of the Spirit now, went to the Gentile world. And in verse 9, Go ye therefore into the highways and into the hedges, And as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. Thank God for almost 2,000 years now. The blessed Holy Ghost, energizing holy preachers down through these centuries, has been declaring the truth of God, endeavoring to gather out of the highway and out of the hedges a Gentile bride for Christ. To bring unto that marriage individuals who will respond to his lordship who are willing by the consent of will to bend their neck to his yoke, to come under the divine prerogatives of his government. Then you will notice in verse 10, in this persuasive invitation, and let me remind you tonight, oh, the invitation of that blessed Holy Ghost through the anointed preacher delivering the truth of God, the message of God, is one of the most persuasive of all messages or invitations that have been given through the generations. Say, how come? Because every time the gospel is preached, there's the elevation of the Christ. Do you know why the pulpit stands at the head of a Protestant church? 
Do you know why it's sitting here in the middle of this church at the head of this congregation? It's here that the word is lifted. It is here that the word becomes flesh. It's here that the gospel takes on form so that you can begin to understand it with your mind and perceive it with your heart. That isn't an accident. We don't believe in the elevation of the host. We don't believe in we take uh, the communion service as a symbolism here. Roman Catholicism elevates the host and goes through the sacrificial system in every mass. We do not do that. But we do elevate the living word, Christ, for he is salvation. We elevate him. That's why the pulpit, the place of the declaration of truth, is established at the head of the church. Not an altar at the head of the church where a host is elevated, but a pulpit or a sacred desk where the word of God is declared. I don't understand the mystery of it and I don't, I don't pretend to understand it. But I know this, that when God the blessed Holy Ghost begins to take eternal truth and he begins to put shape to it and form to it, there's the presentation of the gospel. There's the presentation of Christ and he renders the invitation for he said, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And so these men went out with the word of God in their mouths, more than in their heads, but also in their hearts. And now under the anointing of the Spirit, elevating that Christ through the preaching of that word. And he with his winsome invitation is drawing men out of the highways and the hedges unto himself. I had an experience in a revival just this last fall where I had a couple out of a nominal church converted right in their seat while I was preaching the gospel. First night they came to the service. They sat there and listened. The next night they came with a huge family Bible. I mean a huge one. Carrying it under their arm. They were officials in the nominal church of which they were a part. And they had that Bible open back on the second seat where they were sitting, crossed their lap, and were leafing through it, trying to find the references to which I would call their attention. And I knew they had a total ignorance because they had difficulty. But I also noticed that periodical tears were going down their cheeks, and occasionally their head would fall on the back of the seat in front of them. The next night they came to the altar while I was preaching, during the preaching. And about five, a couple of minutes, they got up on their feet. And they turned to me and they said, "Way we speak. And I said, yes. They turned around and faced that congregation and said words like this. They said, we didn't come to this altar to be saved tonight. We were saved last night. And they pointed right back to the seat. Their God met us. And we're saved. We came here tonight as a public testimony to you what God did for us. You say, what was it? The elevation of the Christ and the persuasive 
persuasive influence of that invitation of his upon their hearts. Listen to me, friends. There's no substitute for that. And it's the most powerful encounter that a man can ever experience. Have you ever been encountered with Christ? Oh, I see the Apostle Paul, that perfect rebel. That light shone out of heaven. You say, what was that light? The Shekinah of God. Who's the Shekinah of God? The Christ of God was revealed. Supernaturally to him. And he fell on his face. His eyes were blinded and dazzled with the brightness of the light of it. The Lord said to him, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why kickest thou against the pricks? Why is it that you've been constantly rebelling against me, refusing to yield to me? Why is it you've been refusing to submit to my claim and to my government? And he said, Lord, here came his will into play. He said, Lord, I bend, I bow, I surrender. Now listen to me. Surrender to God's prerogative over you does not take place in holiness but in regeneration. Doesn't take place in entire sanctification. You cannot be sanctified unless you are surrendered. You have to be a surrendered soul. To become a candidate for the cleansing of your heart. Could that be one of the basic reasons of our dearth? Said, Lord, I bow, I bend, I take your yoke. And there was never a revocation of that in Paul's life. He never changed his mind. Never once is it recorded he ever backslid. Never a moment did he ever question Christ's authority over him. Though he faced some of the most extenuating and debilitating circumstances in life. word says so those servants went out and gathered as many as they found both bad and good that doesn't mean that they were necessarily bringing in immoral people as I mentioned to you in the parable of the virgin and in that portion that was preceding it sometimes this means people who are earthy in their concepts there are a multitude of people I think the word good here has reference to those who by the consent of will here make the ultimate surrender. Where the word bad could mean those individuals who have succumbed to certain outward identifications without an absolute surrender of nature. Man's a great conformist. We have tremendous powers of adaptability. And a lot, a large percentage of the multitudes will always fit in with whatever crowd with which they are identified.
that is not necessarily a criteria of our salvation. That's what he's trying to tell you here. There's something deeper, something more profound, something more important here that takes place within the essential nature of the creature. So both the bad and good were drawn in. I'm sure as a preacher of the gospel, there have been many individuals that I conceive to be converted who were not. And if you're honest as a preacher, you will also admit the same. And many individuals are taken into the church that were never converted. That's right. We don't, we're not able to properly always discern it. And there is no such thing as a perfect church. Within everyone are tares and wheat. And they are both growing together. So within everyone is both bad and good within the context of that heart relationship. All right? Then you will note, however, there comes a time of personal inspection. And once again, he brings this into focus. The same thing I've been talking about here. He said, now within this gospel dispensation, as I look out over my kingdom, Cross the marriage, those that have claimed to do obeisance before the king, to surrender his divine will, to yield to his prerogative, to call him Lord. He said, as I look out over the crowd, he said, I discern there's one not having a wedding garment. That meant the badge of that submission. Now, God doesn't look on the outward, but on the inward of the heart. You and I have a capacity to fool man, but you and I don't fool God. I've been fooled a lot of times. And I'm sure every pastor's been fooled a lot of times. And the most discerning of saints has been fooled a lot of times. But God never. Did you know that God knows you tonight? Not by what you appear, but by what you are. He knows whether you have the badge of submission, the badge of yielding with him imprinted upon your nature or not, and you have his yoke on you. He knows that. He doesn't need any man to tell him of man. He knows what is in man. God has the capacity to pull back all of our subterfuge and superficiality and gaze into the inward man of the heart. He brings into a full exposure of what we are and our essential nature. It's almost frightening. I mentioned in one of the messages for one of the basic great fears of the human family is the fear of self-discovery. We spend our whole lifetimes endeavoring to dodge that reality. And we'll exercise every subterfuge to keep us from that truth. We'll try every experiment to somehow find relationship with God 
until we come to our extremity and suddenly discover that Jesus Christ is the only answer. We'll go through any humiliation. We'll make any kind of a confession. We're willing to do anything that we think will help us in order to bring peace to a troubled heart with the exception of a full surrender to the prerogatives of God. Say, how come? Because within that heart's a cliff's fist against authority. We want the greatest kingdom in the world. We had a representative here from the United Kingdom in this congregation. I believe he's here tonight. And the monarch who sits on their throne exercises certain powers with limitations. But that isn't the greatest kingdom in the world. The greatest kingdom in the world isn't ruled out of the Kremlin. It isn't ruled out of the White House in Washington. The greatest kingdom of the world wasn't ruled by a Genghis Khan. The greatest kingdom in the world wasn't ruled by Alexander the Greek. The greatest kingdom of the world wasn't ruled by a Nebuchadnezzar. The greatest, most powerful, and potent kingdom in the world is you yourself. You have power. You realize tonight, hanging on your hands, are heaven or hell? Do you realize in your hands hangs eternal destinies? Do you realize in your hands hangs the ability to bring power to give life or take it? No one's ever been able to measure the potential of the human person. We talk about the power of the atomic bomb. I have one son who's a nuclear engineer and he's talked to me about nuclear fission and so forth and he gets me out there in a realm I don't understand and I can't follow him and he talks to me about it in, in terms and so forth and figures that I, I just can't even comprehend. But I told him one day, I said, but son, son, there's something more powerful in this world than that. He said, what is it, dad? I said, it's that that's incarcerated within your frame. You have in you powers. I said, I want you to remember one thing. You have a responsibility to relinquish the entire authority over the use of those powers to a Christ who is omniscient, who has the ability to make the right choice through you. Now, God knows tonight in whose hands the reins lie in your life. Some of you have been kicking against the pricks a long time. Some of you young folk, even in the Bible college here, have been kicking against the pricks, against the will of God. Your problem's not the conditions that exist in our world. The problem exists within who has the authority on your kingdom, on the throne of that kingdom.
you parents, all of you people who sit here tonight, that's the basic problem of the human family. And when the father looked out, a father king looked out over those guests who had responded, and I want you to notice this now, they all responded to the invitation. They all responded to the invitation. They gave an acquiescence and a response. But he looked out and he saw a man who had not on a wedding garment. The badge of submission was not discerned. And he went to that man, the word says, and he said, Sir, my dear friend, Sometimes I have found that that word friend is my dear little one. And you can see God pouring out the compassion here. Isn't it amazing how compassionate God is with us? I, I got looking when I was studying this message and got looking into Jesus dealing with Judas Iscariot and noting him pouring out compassion on that man whom he knew would shortly betray him. Right up to the end! until his ultimate final decision was made. There was compassion. Compassion. Never a word of censor, but always compassion. Always a confrontation with truth, but ever compassion. And so here, he comes up to the man and says, my dear little one, how is it that when you knew what the requirement was, that you deliberately 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 came into this marriage without submitting to that requirement oh friends I want to tell you something tonight one of the greatest blasphemies of the earth are those who make the pretensions that indeed they are gods when the gospel's not working in them. For they are making a declaration to the world that this gospel that is to meet man's deepest need doesn't work for them. And they hold the Christ up to an open shame as being totally inadequate to meet that human need. And then comes a pertinent warning. And I almost tremble as I look at it here. He then said in this passage, in verse 13, while in verse 12, when the man was finally disillusioned, he had been in an illusion up until that time, but now when his illusion was destroyed and his foundation upon which he had built his hope was gone, he was confronted with his true self-discovery. The word says he was speechless. And then the king spoke and said to his servants, and I don't dare go into the theological application here, but he said to his servants, bind him hand and foot that suggests to me continued rebellion. Just 
let him go ahead and do as he pleases. A great fear that ought to possess man is when God takes away the restraints. When God, during the tribulation, finally lifts every restraint, man brings himself to the brink of ultimate total destruction in the space of less than seven years for the whole human family. And when you and I make an ultimate decision and God says, all right, let him have his head. He's worse than a runaway horse. Powers that are unleashed, that are destructive. Then thirdly, cast him into outer darkness. That means away from the center of light. Outer darkness means beyond light. And finally, where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. You say that means hell. Not as I see it here. He's talking about maturing rebellion. And once and rebellion will mature throughout an eternity. I believe that even as a saint, throughout eternity, will have a certain kind of development in the amplification of his knowledge and understanding so that the damned, from the moment of ultimate decision, all through eternity, shall mature in their rebellion. I don't know what all that but it frightens me. And hear me tonight, out across this congregation are those that have the reins in your own hands. You have the form, but deny the power of the godliness. You have the shell, but you have missed the submission to the divine will of God to where he reigns supreme without a rival and he sits upon the throne I wanted to close with an illustration tonight from my own life I well remember one of my former pastors sits back there tonight Brother Commodore as God was dealing with me concerning the ministry I had my aspirations on other things I had my goals set for other objectives and finally God confronted me with an ultimate decision and he said, now, son, it's either this or hell. And it came to me in the most forcible way, a way indescribable. 
I was on my way to the office. I do not remember that morning even traveling to the office. I was riding with a friend. And for some reason or the other, I asked him to let me out of the car one whole mile from where my office was. And I walked that distance. And there walking with me was an unseen but a very present person. And he made a statement like this in response to a statement I made. I said, Lord, I'm ready for retirement now. My home's paid for. There's the car in the garage. Family's all raised and educated. Everything is set. Now I can give you a little time out of my life. But the unseen presence said, but son, you're too old now. And I don't want you. When I arrived at the gate to go to the door to get the elevator to take me to my office, my suit coat was so soaked with perspiration that I could wring the water out of it. My feet sloshed in my shoes. And when I got to the office, I went in and closed the door behind me, picked up one of the phones on my desk, dialed for the outside line, called the nearby Bible college, made arrangements with that president to come that night to set into motion the necessary mechanics to get into that school. Called my wife on the phone and said, I'll not be home. I'm going in another direction tonight. I'm under authority. For back there earlier in my life, there had been a moment when I took the hands off of the reins and the king sat on the throne. And now when his will was expressed, there was no recourse for me but to capitulate for that will. If I did not, I would lose my soul. Tonight, my friend, tonight, my friend, the Christ stands before you. He's the gospel. He's your salvation. He it is that claims the right to sit on the throne of your kingdom. Have you bent your neck to him? Have you made the ultimate surrender? Has your will and its purpose solidified itself that he is Lord? What about it with your life tonight? I shouldn't even have tonight to give an altar call here. You ought to just get right up out of your seat if you're an unsurrendered soul and just make your way to this altar even while we're getting ready. Do you want to come? Come on. The altar's open for you.
Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855, USA. I don't want to lose the fight. I don't want to lose the fight.